But first, we kick it off by talking about plans for back to school. Now, yesterday on the show, I spoke to the president of the Teachers Union, Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. We covered a lot of ground. What schools will look like when they reopen in the fall? Also, what about this? Should kids and teachers wear face masks in school? Some people think they should. Okay, let's get the uh, views of the education minister now. Rob Fleming, very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thanks for doing this. Oh, Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk about back to school. I know some people, you know, we're still in, uh, we're still in the summertime here, but I know the planning is going on at a feverish pace in, in the background. What do you want to see happen in the fall when schools reopen? Do you want to see full schools? Ideally, we want to have as many kids back in the class as possible. And, uh, and yes, uh, schools at 100% capacity under uh, new uh, evolved uh, health and safety protocols that will keep them safe. And, uh, you know, in-class learning uh, resuming, it's been a long, long stretch and certainly will be by September 8th uh, when we're scheduled to resume school for a lot of kids uh, who, who didn't come back in June, who were learning remotely uh, March through May. Yeah. And uh, in-class learning is critically important for kids at all grade levels, especially, you know, primary and middle school as well. And uh, And I think that's that's what our steering committee is working on. We have all the K-12 education partners involved, including the Teachers Federation president, who you, who you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, because I think that's helped us in BC be maybe a bit more successful than other, other jurisdictions where we were able to restart our schools in June on a part-time basis. It was really the collaborative approach in BC, getting soliciting everyone's views and, of course, being a, a science-guided government with the PHO overseeing our, our uh, school reopening plans. Oh. Okay, I'm speaking as a guy who's got, I got two kids in the public system myself, and in my experience with that distance learning there back at the end of the last school year, it was kind of hit and miss. I mean, sometimes it seemed to work well for my own kids, other times not as well. I think it was dependent on which teacher they were dealing with, if they had online learning skills. I've talked to lots of other parents who thought it was a waste of time, others who thought it, it worked okay. What was your experience at the end of the school year with that online learning, and do you think we're going to see more of that in the fall? Yeah, I mean, I say, just as you, I've got two kids in the public school system as well. And um, I think we saw a range of uh, uh, sort of performances there from excellent, incredible, uh, in terms of what teachers were able to do with uh, video conferencing programs and virtual classrooms to um, infrequent and, and maybe, um, you know, just the problem of a lot of kids disengaging. Don't forget, it was a very stressful, uncertain time for families they were they were keeping to their homes it was you know it felt like the end of the world at some points there so very difficult to concentrate and and of course we had to create all that out of nothing so it it, yeah. it i think mixed results yes in terms of uh how quickly uh you know those programs became available in some areas versus others Okay, let me uh, let me play a clip here for you, Minister of Terry Mooring, the president of the Teachers Union, on the show yesterday. And here she is talking about what she anticipates schools will be like in the fall. Terry Mooring. You know, obviously everyone's really concerned and wanting to do things really carefully. It's been our position all along that, that PPE, like masks and face shields, should be available to teachers upon request by the employers. Uh, we think that's really important. Um, it's also important that we have smaller class sizes to ensure physical distancing um, and, and re- reducing physical contact. Okay, uh, let's talk about masks and face shields she mentioned there. Will that be available in every school for every every kid, every teacher? How is that going to work? Yeah, well, certainly what the ministry is doing is taking a lead role coordinating uh, and ensuring that every school district, every school in every school district 
has the kind of supplies they need to, to have very strict hand hygiene rules in place to make sure that surfaces are cleaned frequently. Uh, we made it optional earlier, and we're, we're looking at revising the health and safety standards, as I mentioned, but it was, it was certainly optional earlier around masks and those sorts of things. We want people to feel comfortable and confident uh, in the safety of our schools. The, the June restart, I think, was really successful in, in, in terms of keeping people safe, which was great. Uh, we're one of the few jurisdictions that were able to open schools at, at the end of the, the last school year, and I think that gives us a lot of momentum about how to refine and, and make improvements where needed uh, when we have more kids back in school. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from the union president. Here she gets, she uh, goes a little deeper in, on her views on face masks in school. Terry Mooring. More and more, uh, both federally and provincially, there has been advice that, that uh, PPE be worn, that face mask be worn. Um, again, it's, it's, we, we think it should be available uh, upon request, um, that, that teachers should have it available. It was really important to us that um, the you, wearing of... you think of it should be optional then, though, right? Well, I think, you know, right now, it, where we're going is that it needs to be provided. And, and it's not right now, currently. Um, provided been, and optional, right? Like it, right. Should, it should be available, but optional. It, it should be provided. It should okay. be an option for, for people to wear. Okay. Uh, we, I expect teachers and students both to be wearing PPE um, in, in September. Okay, so she she says that she wants face masks to be made available but not be made mandatory. Do you agree? Is that what we'll see in the fall? The face masks may perhaps encouraged or available but not mandatory in schools? Minister? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where we left off. Um, but as I say, we're looking at some refinements. I mean, you've obviously heard the provincial health officer adjust advice on masks around situations where you know, whether it's in the workplace or public places where physical distancing isn't possible at all times, you know, like the, around transit, for example, and, uh, and, and, and in situations uh, around uh, uh, school reopenings, um, transportation, for example, um, certainly you're going you're gonna to see some, some consideration in our, in our newly restated plan around, uh, around masks and those sorts of things. Okay, but it won't be mandatory, though, right? Uh, no, and I, I think you're, you're hearing that uh, it's, it's, it's really not possible nor necessary for, for kids, for example, to be wearing masks all day in, uh, during the school day. It, it, it's, it's, um, it's probably very difficult, uh, one, to enforce, but also extremely uncomfortable and, and not necessary uh, because there are other uh, very important controls in place around COVID. But don't forget, there won't be any outsiders, quote-unquote, which includes parents coming onto the school property. It will be a, a secure site. In that regard, we're going to have kids kept to cohorts of children. Uh, so, you know, in the event that there could be an infection, we can, we can use the contract tracing system that we've developed in BC that has is, that is, um, served our province very well to, to do that. I hope that does not happen at all. But those kind of precautions are built into the health and safety protocols that we have. Okay, now speaking to Education Minister Rob Fleming, you heard the, the union president there also talk about smaller class sizes. She thinks that's important in order to maintain physical distancing in schools. Is that on the table here? Like, how, if you're going to have all kids back in class, how are you going to maintain physical distancing during the day? Well, this is something we're talking to education leaders about, but I mean, the good news in our school system is that we have like one uh, adult, either a teacher support staff uh, per nine kids in the school system. Right now we have physical spaces that are available to uh, move kids around. You saw outdoor education being a feature in the nice uh, spring weather. Um, gymnasium's probably going to be different for physical education, so it can be repurposed, but schools were using libraries and 
and those sorts of things. So, you know, we have uh, made significant investments and hired 4,500 new teachers very recently in BC, which which has given us significantly lower class sizes already. So that's 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 a good feature. I mean, we did that without knowing, of course, a pandemic was around the corner, but. Having had reduced class sizes, I think that uh, that helps us in terms of the physical distancing of desks and, and those sorts of things in schools. Are, are you confident that when the school year begins that kids will be back in school full-time or will kids be going back part-time? We're going to make the uh, announcement uh, next week on what the stage we expect uh, to be in for September 8th when school resumes. But we're, of course, going to have to keep our eye on exactly how well British Columbia performs for the rest of the summer uh, regarding the pandemic. Uh, you've, you've heard the Minister Dix and uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry express some concern that average daily cases have ticked up from the single digits to you know around 30. Uh, a lot of it is regional outbreaks, to be sure. Uh, but we want to manage um, you know the new cases of COVID in BC because that's really the key for safety anywhere, schools, uh, reopening uh, other parts of the economy, uh, and, uh, and, and, and public spaces, all of those sorts of things. So I think the message we heard yesterday around some additional restrictions, tweaking where we are in the restart plan, those are, a lot of that is, is geared towards having a successful school reopening. We need cases down. We need COVID contained. We need to remain one of the best, best and safest places in the world okay. uh, to keep our schools safe. Okay, final question for you. Will, will there be hand sanitizer available in every school, and will there be soap in every school bathroom? Because it might be surprising for people to learn, but the, you know, the union has complained that that's not always the case in our schools. Will that, will that change in the fall? Right. Yes, I mean, yes, the short answer is yes. There is a lot of hand sanitizer around. We have a central procurement uh, supply hub for, uh, for the school system to access as well. Uh, school districts have been buying it in large quantities. We have requirements for them to have it in significant stockpiles. And uh, we're looking at it, adding additional uh, portable hand washing stations as well so that uh, you know, you're not going to have lineups uh, around uh, hand washing. All those sorts of things are part of the plan. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about no-fault auto insurance coming to British Columbia. Now, yesterday's show, we had Stephanie Cadu on the program. She is a liberal MLA. You may know that she uses a wheelchair, and the reason for that is that she suffered a a catastrophic injury in a car accident uh, when she was a teenager, and she had her own stories to tell about her own dealings with ICBC. She is opposed, as are the liberal opposition, to no-fault auto insurance in British Columbia. She says she does not trust ICBC to take care of people who are injured in car crashes. She wants to keep the right to hire a lawyer and sue if she wants. Now, I got David Eby, the Attorney General, standing by here. But first, have a, have a short listen to this. Here is the liberal MLA Stephanie Cadu on yesterday's show. I went through the tort, tort claim process, uh, which wasn't fun. Uh, absolutely. Had to hire a lawyer and, and go through that process. It was not a fun process. Um, and, uh, and, and it's difficult. Um, but it does provide a degree of closure. Instead, now, people will not have that opportunity. They will, they will just be told by ICBC what they're, what they're entitled to and what ICBC will cover. Um, and they will have to go to ICBC for the rest of their life when they feel they need uh, something related to their injury. 
Okay, Liberal MLA Stephanie Cadu on yesterday's show. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is David Eby, BC's Attorney General. He's the minister responsible for ICBC. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Thank you for doing it. What do you think about what the Liberal MLA had to say there yesterday? She, you know, she suffered a catastrophic injury herself, and she says that she doesn't trust ICBC to take care of people if they're injured in car crashes. Your thoughts? Well, the the concerns that she was bringing are not unique to her. I mean, I share those concerns about making sure that ICBC is held accountable. And so we've put a bunch of safeguards in place because the biggest challenge to this shift, uh, and it's a pretty dramatic shift, where ICBC is no longer hiring lawyers for the at-fault driver to fight the person who was injured in court, but now has a legal duty to assist people in accessing benefits. The biggest challenge we're going to face is the culture at ICBC and getting it uh, to a place where uh, the folks who are working on this understand that their first job is to help people uh, get better and rehabilitate. And so the safeguards we put in place are, are and, and I went over this with, uh, with MLA Cadu uh, in the legislature for a couple of days, uh, but uh, the safeguards include the fact that it's not ICBC who decides what benefits you get or not. It's, it's your doctor, it's your physician, your healthcare professional uh, that says, look, this person can't work or this person needs this or this in terms of rehabilitation. Uh, their occupational therapist or someone else, and then ICBC needs to provide that benefit. And if they don't, then you can go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal and force them to. Um, but the, the structure is one that's used in Saskatchewan and Manitoba to great success. And while I certainly appreciate um, the desire uh, to hire a lawyer and to battle it out in court with ICBC as providing some of those safeguards, uh, it's wildly expensive, and it's getting more expensive every year. And that's why we have the second most expensive insurance in Canada, uh, and why we have some very low benefit levels compared to other provinces. So we can take 20% off the cost of insurance on average for drivers. We can dramatically increase benefits. But the way we pay for that is is no longer spending uh, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on expert reports and lawyers for both sides and multi-year court battles. Yeah. Okay. When you mentioned the, the culture at ICBC and, and you require a, like a cultural shift there, um, could you expand a little bit on that? Do you do you mean to say that right now the culture at ICBC is to basically go to war against people who are seeking compensation from ICBC and fight them in court, and now you've got to change that to a more, what, compassionate system where they're required to help people and not fight them? Yeah, it's not meant to be. Uh, you know, ICBC is meant to do two things at the same time. One is assist people accessing their benefits, and the other is um, provide a legal defense to the asphalt driver. Uh, which is why the asphalt driver bought insurance in the first place. But it's really hard to do both of those things at the same time. Uh, people reasonably feel uh, when their insurance company is hiring a lawyer and paying for a lawyer to fight them in court, uh, that uh, maybe that insurance company doesn't necessarily have their best interests at heart when it comes to providing them with benefits. And uh, also, there's a lot of stress on the system in terms of the cost of all these court battles that uh, plays itself out in terms of limiting benefits for people. And uh, the, when you're spending uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on lawyers and expert reports, uh, it limits the amount of money that's available for benefits. So, for example, there are benefits that MLA, could you and I both agree, uh, have been uh, incredibly inadequate for people who are seriously injured for uh, almost two decades. Uh, and uh, there's no a way to increase those benefits. There's no way to lower rates unless we take some costs out of the system. Right. And so uh, the the challenge at ICBC is they have to restrict benefits because there's only so much money for it. Uh, and they also have a legal obligation to uh, defend the asphalt driver. Right. And uh, when you put those things together, it, it just forms a culture that is not 
uh, doesn't make the person who's been in the accident feel like the insurance company is helping them get better. It okay. just doesn't. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from uh, the liberal critic here, liberal MLA Stephanie Cadieu. And here she is talking about why she does not trust ICBC to take care of people. Here she is. Under this new system, uh, they will need to approach ICBC with the uh, the need for uh, a medical benefit, uh, uh, a wheelchair, for example, um, count psychological counseling, medication, um, home renovations, any anything that somebody might need. Um, income replacement uh, because they can't work because they are now uh, significantly injured. Whatever it might be, they will have to take that request to ICBC and ICBC will decide uh, based on regulations created by the Attorney General what they're eligible for and what they're not. And that will happen each and every time something is needed for the rest of your life. Okay, Attorney General David Eby, what do you say to that? Well, there's there's two parts. I mean, the regulations are being designed with doctors and occupational therapists and other medical experts. I'm not designing them. I couldn't pretend to know how to design a system like that. It's medical experts that are leading that. But more importantly, uh, for people in the situation of a catastrophic injury, that she's describing, where they're suddenly dependent on a wheelchair or need home care or they have to retrofit their home, the vast majority of expenses are pre-approved. That's how it works in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. You don't have to go to ICBC for every expense. And then beyond that, the challenge in our current system is if you're catastrophically injured, you need a couple things to happen. One is you need someone to sue. So if it's a one-car accident, you're out of luck. Uh, the second thing is the person has to have enough insurance to cover your expenses. And most people um, carry on average about $2 million worth of liability insurance. So when you take the 30% of the lawyer's fee off, that's $1.4 million, which sounds like a lot of money for the rest of your life. But that's got to pay for all your rehabilitation, all of your uh, wheelchairs, retrofits, and so on, and people run out of money regularly. And when they run out of money, there's nobody to go to uh, and ask for additional resources. With this new system, there's up to $7.5 million in benefits uh, for people who are catastrophically injured. And so the issue is not um, uh, particularly, to my mind, uh, the fact that you know these expenses recommended by your physician uh, and provided through this new system that that you're involved with ICBC, the issue with the current system is there's nobody to cover those expenses for you when, when the money runs out. Okay. And so there are a lot of people living in poverty who had serious car accidents, and, and that obviously has to change. Okay, you mentioned earlier that let's say someone is is injured in a car crash, and one of the things that Stephanie Cadu, the Liberal MLA, mentioned yesterday was she compared ICBC potentially being like WorkSafe BC, and if someone is injured on the job, um, we could probably fill a whole show here with phone calls from people who are, have frustrations about trying to get benefits from WorkSafe BC from a work-related injury. She, she painted a picture where ICBC will be the same thing. If you're injured in a car crash, you're going to be in a fight with ICBC to get coverage for the rest of your life. Um, you mentioned earlier that actually, no, you're saying that ICBC won't be deciding these benefits. It's your doctor, right? So That's right. So is that your own personal physician will make these make these recommendations? And let's say you have let's say you don't agree with your doctor. Can you go to go to get a different doctor and get a second opinion? How is that going to work? Yeah, that's right. The, the biggest challenge, uh, one of the bigger challenges that we face in the system is a lot of British Columbians don't have family doctors. So we're working with doctors at BC to figure out how we can best work with uh, walk in clinic doctors and and uh, and other ways that we could provide that support for people who don't have family doctors. But it's your own medical professional that you're choosing and identifying. ICBC is not picking your doctor for you. If you have a family doctor, it's your family doctor. 
Uh, it's the occupational therapist that you hire for your home care. It's the person that you hire to do home care for you. It's not ICBC choosing a contractor that delivers all ICBC services across the province. So uh, it's directed by the person in the program. And it does sound um, too good to be true, but I, I just have to underline Mike, how expensive the current system is in terms of running everything through BC Supreme Court. Uh, it enables us to provide this level of benefit to people and reduced rates for drivers, uh, which is long overdue, uh, because we're taking those costs out of the system. Okay, but but let's say let's say your family doctor, you get a you get a a, a remedy from your family doctor that you disagree with, um, and can you go and get a different opinion? Like, let's say your family doctor says, "Well, I think you're capable of going back to work." And you don't agree yeah. that your injury is still is too severe to go back to work. Can I go get another opinion from a different doctor? You can. Wow. Okay. All right. And uh, when does all this kick in? Uh, this when will we see no fault auto insurance in BC? It's in May of uh, next year. Uh, so in January, there'll be a calculator for people to see what their rates will be like under the new system. So people who buy just basic insurance. We'll see lower savings, but people who are buying, uh, it's called optional insurance or extended third-party liability, uh, they're going to see more significant savings, and the average savings will be about 20% for drivers. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic in British Columbia. Let's talk about the impact on the BC tourism industry now. And this is one of the sectors of our economy that has been disproportionately battered by this pandemic. They are looking for help. My guest is Vivek Sharma. He is the chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be there. I, I appreciate it a lot. Let's let's talk generally about the the impact of this pandemic on on your business, on the tourism industry. Can you can you sum it up for just how tough this has been for tourism in British Columbia? Well, I mean, uh, I, I think people react to numbers a little bit better. So I'm going to put a few things in front of everybody. Okay. So in 2018, we were a 20 billion dollar plus industry uh, with a provincial GDP of 8.3 billion. We had just under 20 million, 20,000 businesses, uh, direct employment of just over 160,000, so the third largest private sector employer in BC. And fast forward that to a post-COVID era, uh, you know, occupancies in hotels for June alone are down 62% compared to the previous year. Wow. Uh, about 10% of our independent restaurants have already closed. 50% are expected to permanently close by the end of the year. About 100,000 full-time and part-time jobs have been temporarily or permanently lost. Uh, and if, if we don't get this aid, uh, another 120,000-odd jobs could be lost, you know. Uh, we are expecting just under $15 billion loss in revenue this year alone. Yeah, yeah. No, this is brutal. I mean, the, the numbers are, are, uh, are shocking, really. I mean, but have you seen any kind of modest recovery we we've entered into a phase three of of reopening the economy we see some it, it appears to be some ac economic activity coming back are you yes, guys coming back a absolutely. little bit absolutely yeah. yeah so you know certain areas are seeing recovery you know when you look at some of the okanagan destinations uh, you know uh, but they are very few and far in between and it's only a july and august recovery and a little bit of september but the moment we go into fall, with the groups and meetings business being decimated, 
there is, uh, you know, they'll be back to sitting empty. And then when you look at, you know, a lot of our businesses, uh, like the tour bus companies, whale watching companies, angling guides, hunting guides, they all rely a lot on international business. You know, yeah. I don't even need to talk about the cruise ship business as to what that has done. So uh, it's, uh, you know, as much as I hate to say this, but the silver linings are really very tiny, if any. Yeah, I, I remember that, that we have... We had Premier John Horgan a few weeks ago encouraging British Columbians, look, go on vacation here at home, do a staycation, uh, go to some of these businesses that have been hurt badly during this pandemic, and let's try and keep them, keep them afloat. Are, are, you, are you seeing any of that? Have you, have you guys launched any kind of domestic campaign to get people to do a staycation here at home in B.C.? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, Destination British Columbia looks after all the marketing uh, for the province uh, for tourism-related activities. So we are seeing, you know, domestic demand. But yeah. uh, statistically, we know uh, domestic travelers' spending powers uh, or spending habits are very different than an international or a destination guest spending powers. You know, uh, yeah. we, because we live here, we are not going to go on a guided fishing tour because, you know, as Canadians, we fish for a living, you know. We uh, do all these things by ourselves. So, yes, there is uptake in some sectors, but there are also yeah. multiple sectors where, uh, you know, there is no uptake or very minimal uptake. Speaking to Vivek Sharma, he is the chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. You mentioned that uh, you've seen some destinations open up for some for some modest business with uh, domestic tourism and staycations and you mentioned the Okanagan for example and in the last few days we've seen this outbreak of COVID-19 at a couple of resorts in Kelowna do you have concerns that uh, the government could bring in tougher restrictions and scale back on the openings because of these COVID-19 outbreaks that we've seen and hurt you guys even worse well, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I'm not a health expert, so I can't comment on what Dr. Bonnie Henry or the public health authorities will do. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, you know, the aid package that we are talking about is built on a foundation of an 18-month recovery. And, and when we were building this, we were taking all these kind of things into factor that there is a lot of discussion about a second wave. There's a lot of discussion about outbreaks. And, and those are things which can potentially happen. So the aid package was built, keeping all of those things in mind, that what happens if those kind of things kick in or if those kind of things happen. But, but do you think, like when you hear stories about a couple of uh, resort hotels in the Okanagan where there, a lot of kids were gathering together in big groups and having a party resulting in a, in a spike in COVID cases there now and, and a thousand people under quarantine, do you guys are you confident as a, as a tourism association that your member businesses are are doing enough to keep people safe and following the rules and reopening safely? I mean, is that a message you're trying to drive home to your your member businesses? I think you know all businesses, not just tourism, but all businesses have have taken utmost care and health and safety of their staff, guests, communities of paramount importance, and uh, this is. 
uh, this is, uh, you know, safety right now and has always been as a two-way street. You know, businesses have to make sure that they have their protocols and practices in place uh, for from a health and safety perspective. And then we as guests and tourists have to be equally responsible. Just because I am not a resident in a certain community and I've just gone there for two days as a visitor doesn't mean I change my habits responsible habits to becoming irresponsible you know yeah. so so right. this is a two-way street that industry and communities and and guests have to walk on it together yeah i, th- I think that's uh, critically important because if we don't do that then that's when you could see the government step in with, with tighter restrictions and scaling back the openings that we've seen already and i don't think anybody wants to see that let, let me ask yeah. you about the um the assistance package that your association I- is seeking you're asking for a, a large uh, package of assistance for affected BC tourism companies. Tell me about that. How much money are you looking for and what would be done with the money? So it's a $680 million package and a big bulk of that is focused on what we call a working capital recovery grant of $475 million. The biggest challenge that the industry is facing right now is around liquidity. You know, most businesses are at the end of the runway, if not uh, already beyond that when it comes to cash in hand and liquidity. And, and, you know, the fixed cost, that is where the recovery grant will focus on is help businesses keep paying for those fixed costs like utility, power, rent, insurance, things that whether you're open or not, they are, they are, they are piling up. Uh, $190 million is focused on what we call support for adaption costs. So uh, that would be helping businesses. We all know we are being asked to modify how we operate, uh, bring in new measures, physical distancing, et cetera. And that all comes at a cost, you know, putting up plexiglass in the restaurants, putting up plexiglasses at front desks, uh, you know, arrival experiences, uh, contactless deliveries. All of that takes, um, takes money. So 190 million would be uh, dedicated towards that, and the balance 15 million is um, for uh, for what we call support for developing resilient uh, British Columbia focused supply chains. So that you know the tourism industry has always been historically engaged in supporting local businesses, uh, but but uh, re-engage and reinforce that even more. So that, A, not only are we buying within British Columbia, but doing that is helping us re-energize the larger uh, British Columbian economy. Right. Speaking to Vivek Sharma from the BC Tourism Association, we live in an era where there's a lot of government money going out the door to help individuals and businesses survive through this crisis. And we've seen some astronomical monetary numbers that are almost impossible to to quantify in some degrees like we got a trillion dollar deficit of uh, 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 debt at the federal level and billions and billions of dollars in annual operating deficits for uh, all levels of government still when you talk about uh, a bailout or an assistance package here for the tourism industry 680 million dollars is not peanuts so what would you say to taxpayers who are listening to this show right now? How, how would you sell them on it? Like, why would you say that taxpayers should put up $680 million of their money to help well, your industry? Well, I think to re-energize the economy, you know, we, we have this saying, you know, you know that you teach a person how to fish, he will never go hungry. 
But if you keep giving the person the fish, they, they, the moment you stop giving the fish, the person goes hungry. So when we put money back in the businesses, the employees can start coming back. And, and the burden on the government to keep paying those employees keeps getting reduced. Tax revenue starts flowing back again. Uh, you know, uh, the contribution of the businesses and the local economy starts kicking back again. So it's, it's a cycle that uh, that kickstarts the larger economy, you know. Uh, and this is yeah. this is an investment not, I wouldn't say, yes, it is coming into the tourism industry, but it is into the larger British Columbian economy to eventually take the burden off the government and the taxpayers. Okay, this, would this be $680 million from the provincial government or would the feds be involved here too? No, this is just from the provincial government. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, we are, uh, yeah. What is what has been the response of the government to your request? Well, it's it's still very early days. You know, this only went out on Friday, so um, there, there's obviously going to be a lot of consultation that's going to happen with the government. So we are not there yet, but we are hopeful that it will uh, it will be received positively. What ha- what happens if you don't get help? What would be the outcome of that? Like, how many people would lose their jobs permanently? How many businesses would go under and never come back? Well, I mean. Uh, Based on the numbers that I told you, uh, there is uh, not a distinct possibility. It's a reality which is staring in our face that uh, we may potentially not have a tourism and hospitality sector in the next 12 to 15 months in B.C. Thank you for coming on today. I'm hoping there's better days ahead. You're welcome.